Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. This is Gabe's Torres. It has been a treat to be with you as your host, as your guest host here on the Speaking of Racism podcast. On this final episode with me, I am joined by Dr. Travis Heath. And Dr. Travis is a licensed psychologist and has served as a professor of psychology at Metropolitan State University of Denver for the last 12 years. He's been involved with with this work of shifting from a multicultural approach to counseling to one of cultural democracy that invites people to heal in mediums that are culturally near. His most recent work involves incorporating the work of Black abolitionist scholars into psychotherapy, community healing, and uprising. And there's just so much more to say about Dr. Travis Heath, but for now I want to highlight the fact that not only is this one of my most favorite podcast conversations that I've ever been a part of, but just really one of my most favorite conversations in general, where we get to talk about the mental health industry and counseling schools have a tendency to center and prioritize um, what Dr. Travis calls like dominant spaces of healing and interrogate, learning how it's like to interrogate and challenge them and consider alternatives, not just alternatives, but consider what the client, what the patient, what the people that we serve actually prefer, prefer as spaces, mediums of healing that are more meaningful, that are more aligned with who they are. I hope that you benefit so much from this conversation. Take it in, relish in it, (laughs) listen to it again later, share it. And I also want to extend my gratitude to my friends Michael and Tolu for sharing in the middle of this podcast their own experience and their own take on what it's like to decolonize their clinical practices as well. So here's my conversation with Dr. Travis Heath. Well, thank you for being here with me. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, I typically start interviews with a dedication. And this can be a dedication to an ancestor or so. It can be a living person. It can be a non-human friend um, or creature. But... The reason why I start off with that is because I kind of want to locate us in our ecosystem of relationships, that we are who we are because of our community, um, because of this ecosystem. And I'm curious that if you are to dedicate our time together to someone, who would that be? I might cheat and there might be someone's, there might be more than just one person, but uh, um, there's a couple of people that are on my mind uh, one is a person named Makungu Akinyela, who has been a, a really good uh, mentor over the years, and his work's been really inspirational for me. And another one is David Epstein. Um, and the reason these two people are often on my mind and traveling with me, but the reason they're on my mind right now 
is we're just finishing a book. David and I are with our colleague Tom Carlson, and so um, that is that's been like a, a labor of love for the last four years, and it's near the finish line. So it's really in my mental space, and I just think about how much I owe to David for his mentorship and uh, colleagueship and friendship over the years, and then Makungu. So, so much of his work. Uh, drives what I do and inspires what I do. So oftentimes when I'm writing, he's there, even if, you know, he's not a part of the project. So just because that book is so much in my mind right now and in my heart and soul, I think those two people uh, are, are worthy of, of dedications, not just today, but a lot of days, but I'll dedicate this to them yeah. today. Thank you. Thank you. Honor, honor to both of them. I mean, every time I talk with you, it, they're never without mention. Um, I also extend energetically my gratitude to them. When is the book coming out? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, it, well, our, our due date, if we call it that, for like the final, final, final draft uh, <laughs> is August 1st. Um, and so then I don't know how long it takes after that, you know, like the whole publishing thing and COVID and all that. But if it if we get it to the August first, I'm hoping like by this fall, people will be able to read it. Okay, sounds good. That's exciting. That's August is around the corner too. I know. I'm excited for you, and I typically also dedicate our time together to someone. Which at this point, I believe um, it feels right to dedicate this to Dr. Letty Mendoza Strobel. She is a um, I would say like an educator around decolonization. I wouldn't be who I am either in my scholarship and in my own personhood, in my own work, if not for her work, especially as she indigenizes scholarship. Um, so honor, honor to Dr. Lenny. Okay, I'm really grateful that you are here with me. And to start things off, I would love for you to share with us what your story is, who you are, and what led you to doing the work that you do today. Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. It's a big question to consider who I am um, and all the different people that are a part of who I am, who I was, who I'll be. Uh, well, so I'm Travis. Um, my my story is probably unique. I mean, it's not totally unique. Other people have similar stories, but um, you know, my I was adopted when I was very young, eight weeks old, something like this. Uh, my birth father is from Brazil, what's called Pardo, which means um, of indig Brazilian indigenous African and European descent. And then my birth mother is of European descent, Polish and German. And I was adopted by two uh, white parents when I was super young, seven, eight weeks old. Um, this gives one an interesting experience in the world. Uh, like... Uh, when you're when you're obviously not phenotypically your parents child biologically your parents child uh, people look at you and so I had that experience for as long as I can remember but I didn't know that I was in a that I was weird or the situation was weird in any way until I got old enough to sort of understand the gaze of another mm -hmm. right and so um, and then it was like oh okay this is different there's something that uh, you know people find weird about this um 
I, I feel fortunate in a lot of ways growing up the way that I did and, um, you know, sort of floating between uh, cultures, floating between racialized standards and dominant racialized standards of identities. And I think it's given me a, a kind of a unique outlook in a lot of ways um, in life, my life, but also the way that lives get storied in general. Um, so that part of my story is, I think, important. Uh, you know, also growing up, I was into sports, really into basketball. So basketball has been a big part of my journey in lots of lots of different ways. I've learned a lot about myself, about community, uh, about life from from basketball and from sports. So that was definitely a part of my life. I really wasn't like an academic. I mean, I did fine in school. I, I mean, I did well, but I. You know, like if you ask the people that knew me when I was in high school, if I would have a PhD, I probably wouldn't have been the first person on that list that they would expect to do that for a variety of reasons, probably a lot of fair ones. Um, but what shifted for me was, uh, you know, so I tried to play basketball in college, figured out I wasn't wasn't that good. And so, you know, uh, had that sort of early identity crisis about who I was. And, you know, went, went to a school in Denver called Metropolitan State University of Denver, which is like a commuter school. Um, didn't know what the hell I was going to do and took an intro to psychology course and was sort of captivated by all of that. Like, it was like stuff I already thought about, but people did research on this. They taught, you know, they thought deeply about it. There were languages to go with it. You know, so this was really interesting to me. And it sort of sent me on this journey of, you know, clinical psychology at first, you know, and then that, that became more thinking about helping and healing, right? Clinical psychology is somewhat limited in certain ways. But, you know, if I hadn't have had Dr. Linda Lockwood as an intro to psychology professor, I people say I wouldn't be sitting here today, but like, quite literally, I probably would not be sitting here today. And so while my relationship with psychology is complicated um, today, in 2021, I'm grateful because the field and the ideas and some of the teachers I encountered, you know, that, that gave me a sense of purpose. Uh, it gave me a sense of possibility of what I might be able to do in the world. It, you know, helped me think about how my, I might be of service to, to other people uh, and to communities. And so I'm really thankful for that, even though some of the ideas of clinical psychology, I might um, be at odds with sometimes. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, um, going into my life now, I mean, I have been married for going on, gosh, what is it, 2021? So going on 16 years. Wow. So that's quite a long time. Uh, uh, we have two kids, you know, nine and five. So a lot of parenting is really present in my life these days, especially during COVID the last year and kids are home a lot. <laughs> um, so parenting's really important to me. And um, and then, you know, I teach, uh, I won't get into all the sort of titles and all that stuff, but I, I, I think of myself as a teacher. Um, so I enjoy teaching uh, and enjoy collaborating with with students and people around ideas of like clinical psychology i'm doing air quotes that's bad for a podcast but clinical <laughs> psychology and and you know psychotherapy and then really healing like what do all these things mean and then 
the last thing to sort of tie this together, and we'll probably talk more about this, mm-hmm. but just um, thinking about non-dominant ways of healing, like non-dominant cultural ways of healing has been really important to me, mostly because I took a bunch of Eurocentric models. I, I mean, I, that's what I was gifted in my trainings, my formalized trainings. And I, the shit didn't work. And so, you know, like, or it was mediocre at best. And so I really had to figure out other ways of working, you know. And so that's become a big part of, I think, what I do and who I might be as a, as a healer. So I teach now, um, supervise. I don't like that word, but that's the word that everyone knows, right? Supervise. And then um, like supervise seems like you're, you know, like you're keeping tabs on someone. That's a really nasty word, but it's the word the field uses. And then I have my own practice where I see people probably, I don't know, more than I probably should see given the time I have, but you know, people call and you hear their stories and what are you going to do? end up working with them so probably 12 to 15 people a week something like that so that's that's kind of the current space i find myself in Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well thanks for giving us glimpses of your formation and of your life in both like professional and personal senses um yeah i've always admired your tweets on the nba (laughs) i grew up with a lot of nba with three younger brothers so that that just Mm, It feels like home whenever I see tweets like that. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that you are typically at odds with certain modalities in psychotherapy. I would love to hear more about that. And perhaps I'm alluding to um, what it's like for you to radicalize psychotherapy. Yeah, it's interesting because often I don't think what I'm involved with is that radical. Um, Others sometimes call it radical, but it's weird to me because I'm like, this isn't like I could show you people I know that are doing stuff that's way more radical than me. So in some ways, it's sort of it's weird to me that the and disturbing that the field is calling calling some of this radical. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, so multicultural counseling was one of the first ideas that I guess I was at odds with. I don't know at odds with is an interesting way to say it, uh, but and I know I said it. You didn't say it. You're just repeating what I said. But I'm just reconsidering that languaging. I mean. It's 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 accurate to a certain extent, but as a student, you know, uh, multicultural counseling, I it just didn't sit right with me. You know, like what I mean is, we'd read these textbooks and it would say something like, "Well, when working with an Asian client, you know, I'd be like, hmm, Asian, like, well, what does that mean? Uh, that's quite a that's quite a descriptor for a whole bunch of different people from a whole different bunch of different parts of the world, you know? So that I didn't like that. And then it was sort of like, you know, that there'd be this kind of prescription for how you would work with, you know, a quote unquote Asian person, for example. And so that I I couldn't articulate it very well when I was a student, but I was just like, this, (laughs) this doesn't seem right. Um, and, And it was problematic. And then, you know, in my PhD program, I was at odds with, like assessment, formalized uh, cognitive assessments, um, you know, ideas about like IQ testing, for example. And, you know, this is like 2005. uh, So everything wasn't quite as digital, but I came with, I mean, I came ready. I I came with a bunch of, uh, you know, hard copies of articles talking about the ways in which uh, cognitive assessments and most uh, specifically IQ uh, assessments were racially and culturally biased. And my professor said this to me, and I'll never forget this. He said, well, Travis, just because a test is not culturally neutral does not make it culturally biased. 
And I remember I was like, damn. And I stopped and I thought about it. And then he just kept going. And, you know, maybe I'm a little slow or whatever. It took me two or three minutes to think about it. And then I was like, no, wait, that's exactly what that means. And I tried to, uh, you know, bring that back up. And he was just sort of like, I'm sorry, we've moved on. You know, it was a great little tactic to stop me from being a rabble rouser, I suppose. I, I mean, I chimed back in in different ways as the class went along, but, you know, that, that really made an impression on me, you know, that, that just because something's not culturally neutral doesn't make it culturally biased. And I started thinking about, well, what does it mean to be biased? And like, if something's not neutral, of course it's biased in some direction, you know, um, at least as I see it. So I had these little moments like that that happened where I was just like, why won't psychology address these things? Now that to be fair, there are psychologists and people in the field of psychology who do address this in certain ways, but it's not the standard. And so, so that really bugged me. And, and, you know, time, as time went on and I got out into the world and started practicing outside of the gaze of my formalized uh, supervisors, I, I, I started thinking about, you know, why is it that, and I started thinking about, I mean, yes, I thought about it, but people like Makungu and others um, reading their works and, and seeing what they had to say about, about these things too. But, you know, multicultural counseling became, as, as I understand it, and it's become something where, you know, we're using Eurocentric models of healing for people of non-European descent, or another way of thinking about this beyond just, uh, you know, cultures we might be from or racialized descriptions of people, we might say that we're using dominant ideas or, or, or therapies that came from people with dominant identity statuses, right? And we're using those then, we're inviting people and saying, hey, even if you're not from a dominant identity status, you too can heal in this sort of dominant way of doing therapy, which I suppose on one hand is a nice gesture, but on another hand, it's very problematic because, um, and, and maybe then we start to see why uh, psychotherapy might be thought of as less effective for minoritized persons or for people from non-dominant identity statuses. I reflect back to doing work in Los Angeles when I was completing my master's degree in, in South LA. I was doing work in schools and in homes and community, sometimes just on sidewalks, wherever wherever we could do it. And I remember my colleagues, and I don't blame my colleagues for this, I blame the system that burns them out for it. But they would say things like, um, you know, uh, these, these kids aren't good candidates for therapy. And I remember saying back, once I could muster up the courage to, I said back, well, maybe these therapies aren't good candidates for these kids. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these kinds of experiences just along the way, along with reading uh, important uh, works here and there of various people, really got me thinking about what I've been calling preferred mediums of healing. Rather than inviting people into uh, modes of therapy that weren't created for them to begin with and, and hoping that we can adapt it or that there's some kind of fit. Can we instead learn about people's preferred mediums of healing? And, and this is really, you know, in a lot of ways, I think what narrative therapy had been trying to do since its, its inception, right, was take local knowledge, insider knowledge of people and communities and elevate that knowledge, right? Elevate the knowledge of the other. At the very least, to the same plane as psychiatric and psychological knowledge, but I might even say elevating it above that. And um, I think when we do that, 
it opens up all kinds of possibilities. And um, instead of then going to a, to take this kind of full circle, going to a book and saying, well, you know, this is how you should work with an Asian client. Why not just uh, be in conversation with a people's uh, with people seek to understand their preferred mediums of healing and their communities preferred mediums of healing, maybe their ancestral preferred mediums of healing, take that knowledge and elevate it. Right. And, and find out how we can use it uh, in ways that might be effective to combat whatever the problem or problems are that are bringing them to see us. I, I don't know why that has to be at odds with psychology or psychiatry. Um, I wish psychology and psychology, psychology and psychiatry would consider things a little bit differently sometimes. And, and I don't know, maybe we're starting to move in that direction. But I think what my humble observation has been that uh, psychiatry and psychology and really the representatives of psychiatry and psychology get so defensive uh, often when you bring these things up. And, and I, one hypothesis I have around that is because that at some level, um, these representatives of the fields might know the ways in which psychiatry and psychology have come up short historically speaking. Right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I, I hope we're at a, maybe a bit of an inflection point where people are considering more of these things. It's unfortunate that it's taken the events in the United States anyways of the last year to maybe start to get people in our field to consider things like anti-racist frameworks or anti-white supremacist frameworks or abolitionist frameworks as maybe having some utility in psychotherapy. Like I wish that it hadn't taken what it's taken, but but maybe, and I don't know, we're still too early to know, but I have a, I have some hope that maybe that that can be a result of going through everything that uh, is, has happened in the last year in the United States. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in some ways feels like an unnecessary cost sometimes too, to mm. be able to get here. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really appreciate how you addressed the um, common suspicion that non-white patients and clients have around therapy because of how much um, clinicians have a way of imposing that dominant approach or um, way of even like interpretation of healing and what it means to be healthy, right? Or what it means to have like um, a healthy family. And um, I'm curious about what have been, and I know that it's different per client, it's different per community, I wonder, like, what are the me the preferred mediums of healing that maybe have has surprised you that oh my gosh this actually worked and it's not it's often like inferiorized by many clinicians too. But what is something that gave you a lot of life to know this was this medium worked? Inferiorized, what a word! Ooh, that's so good. Um, yeah, I'll answer your question. It's a very good question. I'll also say to to your point that um, I think if we're not careful, psychotherapy, along with other things, you know, education, et cetera, what 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 the, it, they will unwittingly produce is a maintenance of the status quo, right? And so I think if we're not careful, that that will just be what happens if we don't disrupt it. Um, so I, I appreciate that point. Now to um, to talk some about preferred mediums of healing, I love this question. Um, there are some that stick out. Uh, one that always sticks out for me is a, a woman, and actually I've encountered two women who in one way or another, it wasn't exactly the same, but it was very similar. But the woman I'm thinking of, she said that, uh, you know, 
soil, the earth is a preferred medium of healing, you know, and, um, you know, that she likes to have her hands in the soil. Uh, I remember that part and the smell of it. And it, it you know, it, it gets her in touch with her ancestors in certain ways. And I had never been much of a gardener. So I didn't, you know, I mean, I trusted her, but I didn't have a, a felt sense of this in, in really any way that she did. But when she brought that up, I asked her then, I said, well, would it be helpful for us to have soil in here? And she was like, sure. And so I didn't know what, I mean, I, I know soil, but I, is there a special kind of soil? You know, what could I bring it in? And then I remember asking her, should I stick my hands in soil too? Uh, and she, you know, she was very generous and she just didn't demand I do it, but she was like, well, it's pretty, pretty great. Like you might try it. And I did actually. And so we would have soil there. Um, and I did notice a difference for myself, by the way, I noticed just the smell of it. And it brought me back, of course, to being a kid and being around soil more frequently. And, you know, we use phrases in psychology, like grounding, but this was kind of a literal grounding, you know? Um, but this, what I remember about doing this with her, the smell of it, the feel of it, the, the sort of it's damp and sort of cool. And I don't know, there was something there. I feel like I asked questions that I wouldn't have otherwise asked. And I wouldn't have known to like, I wouldn't have known to say this, you know, like we let's bring soil in. Like I would prescribe that. How the hell would I do that? Um, so, so I, that's, that's something that comes to mind. Another one is, and I, I've actually been in the process of writing this up, uh, really co-authoring it with this person, but, you know, he doesn't have time to write. He's got a life and all of that. So he sort of, you know, is a co-author in terms of reading it and making sure I've got the story right and all that. But this person, um, you know, had lived half of his life, and I share this story with his consent, uh, half of his life in Morocco and half of his life in the United States. And we... we um, Really, there's this this form of questioning that David Epstein and Carl Tom did in the 80s and beyond called internalized other questions, which we've taken to calling embodied other questions. But basically, in this instance, what I did was, um, and there's a whole setup here, a whole bunch of knowledge that I had gained about this person, you know, over time, and I knew he had been very close to his grandfather, and his grandfather had since passed, but. Um, you know, I, I asked him if I could speak to him as though he were his grandfather yeah. uh, and interview them, not not at role playing, but to actually embody his grandfather, try and answer, you know, through through his heart, the relationship he carries within his heart of his grandfather, if he could speak for him. And, um, you know, when I do this sort of thing, people often find it to be weird. And to be fair, it is weird. It's statistically infrequent. Like, that's, I think, the definition of weird, right? And so, uh, but if you stick with it, it's paid dividends, I think, in a lot of different ways in the work I've been involved with. But um, he was having this problem and it was becoming, a, you know, living in this apartment and, and he got sort of duped. He and his family got duped into moving into this place that was above a gym. Uh, that would the noise would start at like five in the morning, the bass, boom, 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 you know, and then they wouldn't let him out of it. And he was just feeling very deflated. His wife was pregnant with her third child. And so, you know, they had a two bedroom and this was a three or a one bedroom and this was a two bedroom, right? So it was a big difference for them, you know, a lot more room. Uh, but they got kind of duped into doing this and, and the landlord wouldn't do right by them. Anyway, um, when we interviewed his grandfather, uh, there were two pieces of Moroccan wisdom that came out. 
Here's the first one. The first one was one hand can't clap. And I had never heard this before, you know, and what I realized is that in the United States, we try to do a lot of one-handed clapping, you know, like we try and clap one-handed a lot. And so, uh, but this, this piece of Moroccan wisdom, one hand can't clap. And then it led us to start considering how can we find maybe more hands to start the clapping. And then there was another piece of Moroccan wisdom, which was, um, let me see if I can get it right. Kindness can pluck the whisker of a lion. Mm. Kindness can pluck the whisker of a lion. Anyway, both of these sort of old uh, ancestral pieces of Moroccan wisdom, we started to build our approach to dealing with this problem in the department around this. Now, I won't share the whole story, but the point is when you talk about preferred mediums of healing, um, this turned out to be one. He, he, he had, by the way, this person had been to like see a lot of sort of standardized, westernized ways of working, right? Cognitive behavioral therapies and so forth. And the shit just wasn't working for him, you know? Um, and so what, what I developed a hunch around was that, you know, and he was about 42 years old, again, half his life in Morocco, half in the United States, the last, the latter half in the United States. And that uh, maybe somehow the Moroccan wisdom uh, had been inferiorized, to use your word, right? Which is a great word. And and my sense is maybe it shouldn't have been, and maybe there would be something that we could tap into there. And now I could have been wrong, and it you know what's the big deal if you're wrong? You just inquire, and and then you look, you go elsewhere, right? But what if my hunch is right? And I don't know where it's going to lead us. It's just a hunch, right? But it ended up leading us to some really important places. It really became the foundation of our work. Now, I could give you some others, but those are two that immediately come to mind. You know, sometimes they rap music, obviously, I've written about this, you know, the ways in which rap music can be a preferred medium of healing. I mean, it could be anything, um, anything like it just but I, I sometimes worry that we as psychotherapists, we become so limited and how we look at this, that the only way we can do this is just to sit 10 feet apart from one another and be in conversation. And that's all we can do. And by the way, that can be very helpful for people sometimes. I'm not denying that. But I think sometimes we limit the possibilities of where we might be able to go with the people we're in conversation with. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I, I felt a lot of things, especially as you talked about the actual grounding, the soil being earthed, and also. Um, and to welcome in ancestral wisdom in that regard. It reminds me of the times that whenever I, I um, make room for these preferred mediums of healing, that there's, there's kind of like a, a voice in the periphery, usually the voice of my supervisor <laughs> that critiques, <laughs> critiques like the, the, what's going on in the therapeutic space. So um, what I'm basically saying, you know, the, the culture of policing that exists within psychotherapeutic spaces, um, educational spaces when it comes to psychology. Would you be able to um, to share a little bit more about your experience around that as both an educator and also as a clinician? Mm, yeah, I love this question. And I've been thinking about it a lot the last probably two, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I've been thinking about it a lot and living with it a lot. Um, you know, the thing about policing is that Often the way it manifests is through fear, yeah. right? So, so like, 
hey, we need the policing because it's what keeps us safe. And whether we're talking about law enforcement, quote unquote law enforcement, or whether we're talking about uh, the people that do the policing in fields like psychology and other helping fields, it's like without the policing, we'll be unsafe. And if we break that down a little further, um, and we really challenge it and interrogate it, we find that often it doesn't have much of a foundation to stand on. You know, like, let's just use law enforcement as a, a jumping off point here. You know, like I have the thought, why the hell do we have people with guns that are making traffic stops? Because someone's going 50 in a 45. Okay, if a society wants to decide we're going to uh, enforce some sort of financial penalty for that, fine. But w- when do we start having people with guns making, you know, like the quote unquote animal control people in my neighborhood, they don't have guns. Like, how did we decide that, you know? And now someone might answer that by saying, well, because people in the cars might have guns. Well, now we're tapping into a bit more of a a larger societal problem, aren't we? And uh, and we could talk about, uh, you know, relationships with guns and how that, and that's fine, but that's maybe for another podcast. But my point is that there's so much taken for granted in this, you know, in the policing and how it's done, you know, and, and to what end. And when I think about this in the field of psychotherapy, so often it's about fear. The policing's about fear. Like if we don't do X, Y, or Z, what if our clients do something and then we get sued, right? And that, that's a mechanism of fear. But it also, it's, it's the impetus for a lot of what happens then, you know, like, um, and, and why I have to supervise and the, I, I have to adopt sort of the, the, the rules of psychiatry and psychology um, because to do anything else would be unethical. And what if I lose my license? And what if I, da, 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 right? Um, and again, I, I'm not implying that all of that's bad all of the time. What I am saying is that it deserves to be questioned. And we deserve to, I think our, the people we serve deserve to have us question how these things work. It's interesting you're talking about the voice of supervisors. Ooh, yes. I, um, this happens to me all the time, you know. I'm in the room and speaking with someone, and I'm getting better and better at teasing these things out. Where I'm like, "Oh, that's not what you think, man. That's that's you know, that's the institution of psychology and psychiatry that are barking." And now I'm not a psychiatrist, but psychiatry and psychology, the, the dominant discourses of those things influence so much of what we do. And so, um, like, like I'll give you an example, so this doesn't just end up in the abstract. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, I might have a story of my own experience and existence that it might turn out to be beneficial for the person that I'm in conversation with to hear, right? There might be, we might form some solidarity around it, or the story might, in otherwise, might otherwise be instructive in some way for them in their lives, uh, spiritually, emotionally, however it might be. But we have this language, that's called self-disclosure. Isn't that interesting? Self-disclosure. Um, now, the interesting thing to me about this, or one of the interesting things is therapists, you know, some would say you never self-disclose and some would be maybe a bit more liberal about it. But I, I don't even like existing in that discourse, you know. David Epstein talks about therapy as a gift exchange, you know, in that um, if therapy is a complete or any conversation is just a one-way street, nobody likes that. Like, if all I was doing, Gabe, was giving you gifts, giving you gifts over and over and over again, I mean, at some point, you would probably want to reciprocate. That's how we are as human beings. You, you would want to extend gifts as well. And, and I, I'm not trying to um, run away from my responsibilities as a therapist. I absolutely have certain responsibilities in that kind of conversation that's different from other kinds, right? But 
you know, um, for me to not bring any of myself or to bring just such a limited uh, bit of myself into the conversation, I think that has its own ethical risks and, and its own therapeutic risks in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. So I'll be sitting with someone and often hear those sort of formative voices, you know, are self-disclosure, are you sure? Why are you going to do that? You got to be careful, you know, whatever. And, and maybe it's good sometimes to have those. I don't know. Um, I'm not saying it's all bad. But I, I found I really need to interrogate those sorts of voices. What are they policing and to what end? Like, what, what's, the, what's the benefit of that? You know, is this just going back to some sort of Freudian idea that we should essentially just listen and give interpretations and that we shouldn't sort of be human beings in the room? Now, maybe that's a little unfair to old Uncle Siggy there, but <laughs> I don't know. Like, um, I just, the point to me isn't so much that I know the right way to police this shit. I'm not saying I do. I'm, I I have some ideas, but they're imperfect for sure. They probably always will be. But I do, you know, it's sort of that Foucaultian idea that we, we need to critique dominant systems just for the sake of critiquing them. Because if we don't, they, they, they can run amok. They can become dangerous, right? Even if the dominant system, it turns out that this is the best way we know how to do things. Fine. We should still interrogate it and make sure that that's the case, right? And so policing in, in, in therapy, I think, turns up in all kinds of ways. Now, you mentioned education. I, I mean, all the time. Like, why do we have grades? Like, what to what end? You know, I've been doing this ungrading experiment in my classes, and it's going pretty well. I'll let you know at the end of this quarter in a couple of weeks how it goes. But it's been going pretty well. But there's this idea that somehow you know, the, the, poli- the police officers of education, that if we're not assessing and giving grades, well, then how do we know that students know it? How do we know what we're doing works? We have to assess them in these ways. Do we, though? I mean, there, if you look at the ungrading literature, it's pretty compelling in, in saying that, um, can we move from a grading orientation to a learning orientation, right? What, what might be uh, the benefits of such a practice? Um, And again, my my point is not that I have all the answers, uh, because I don't, but I am interested in being a part of uh, uh, the people that are interrogating this and thinking about why these systems exist, what harm might they be doing, who are they doing disproportionate harm to? Um, Because I think when you look at a lot of these systems, whether they be in psychotherapy or they be in the educational realm, minoritized people are the people that are uh, having disproportionate harm done to them. And, And so that calls upon us even more, I think, to interrogate these, this policing in these systems. First, I imagine decolonized mental health work to start with prevention. If communities have the resources they need to thrive and we don't function under a mindset of scarcity, we help people maintain their natural ability to stay regulated. We know enough about how stress impacts us and to know how this contributes to what we see as quote unquote diagnoses. Next, healing work is all about relationships and attunement and our systems of care would prioritize and incentivize this over having insurance companies gatekeep care based on whatever symptoms you have. Therapy would be an accessible option for folks who need it while communities at large are actively engaged in the work of healing within themselves. Finally, people would understand that healing and social action go hand in hand. It is the humility to recognize that we all have stuff to work through and also the container of unlearning and undoing our own compliance with oppressive systems. 
I believe, well, to answer your question, I believe in order to do decolonized work within the mental health field, we need to somehow figure out how to get rid of the power dynamic between therapists and clients. Um, so much of colonization comes from um, abusive power dynamics, one holding knowledge over the other, wielding it over them. So if we can figure out a way to level the experience of participant and healer slash therapist slash mental health worker, I feel like that removes that type of inequality but maybe brings equity to the relationship within the therapeutic relationship. I really appreciate the way that you started with fear and how um, policing is often influenced by that experience of fear. And I'm curious about, um, there's been an increase around um, the conversation of abolition, um, especially in light of 2020. I know that that has been a conversation for so many folks, especially for Black, Indigenous, Brown folks. Um, they have been, especially Black folks, pioneers of this movement of abolition. Um, I want to hear about your thoughts around abolitionism, but first want to hear about the myths and misconceptions of abolition, since it's pretty common to have to, for folks to be preoccupied with what is misunderstood around abolition. And then we can move towards what you think of it, actually. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. I and there, there are people uh, much more qualified than me. So you know, I'm taking my cues from, you know, people like Miriam Kaba, for example, who you know could talk about this in ways I couldn't even begin imagining. Um, you know, I, abolitionist ideas really started becoming of interest to me two and a half, three, three years ago, something like that. And really, I I was just thinking about. It, you know, these are amazing ideas. Why isn't psychotherapy taking up some of these ideas? Someone must be, right? And I'd look around and not really. And it was just like, wow. So one of the misconceptions, though, I think is um, this idea that abolition is about tearing things down. And it's really not, right? Uh, uh, like Ruthie Gilmore and others talk about uh, abolition as really being a, an act of creativity to build something new, Right. Uh, Mar Mariam Kaba describes it as a million different tiny experiments. I love that idea. Um, I mean, what is life if not a million different tiny experiments? Um, some of which will fare better than others. Uh, but, but I think the, the way that it gets talked about in, in, in sort of dominant news media and so forth, popular news media, is that it's, you know, like, we're going to tear down the police, you know, and that's going to be it. Like, we're, you know, <laughs> we're going to tear down law enforcement and that's it. And we'll just all sort of fare for ourselves, you know, and, and there are hashtags like defund the police and so forth, which I think are helpful in initiating momentum around movements. I think sometimes people don't stop to understand what that really means, though, right? Like, when you talk about defunding the police, it, it's really saying, take some of the money from the already exorbitant budgets of law enforcement, redistribute that money into other uh, community programs, right? Uh, that, that some of which we might not even be able to imagine what those are quite yet. One thing I've always loved about the, the spirit of the abolitionists I've read is that you don't have to have all the answers. In fact, 
Yeah. It would be bad to have all the answers. You know, like so often in academia, you, you know, you like you create a journal article and it gets edited 10,000 times. And by the time the damn thing comes out, it's obsolete, you know, but it has to be just so. And I, I really love the spirit of abolition and academia and psychotherapy and other fields could learn a lot from it. That No, no, no we just have to go and start creating <laughs> and, and then and then pay attention and learn as we're creating and, and see what's working, what isn't, and, and, and continue to go in the ways and build off the ways that are working. But, you know, it's, it's like, well, if we're going to replace law enforcement, you have to have the perfect uh, idea to replace it. And, and that's not really the spirit of abolition, as I understand. Also, I want to say that abolitionist movements now in the last year or so, lots of folks are talking about them. Abolition has been going on as long as we and our ancestors have been uh, oppressed. So, so the abolitionist movement is not a new movement. You know, um, just like when we talk about decolonization, I feel like that word's taking off in the academy now, you know, decolonize, uh, like this new groundbreaking thing. No, it's not. It's not, it's not new. I mean, it's, it could still be breaking ground. Hopefully it is breaking ground in certain ways, but uh, forging new ways forward. But it's not new. And so I think that's important to think about it in this, in this conversation as well. But anyway, that, that's some of the um, misconceptions that I've seen. What was the second part that you were asking? What it is, if, we, if you want, we can like nuance that a little bit too about how yeah. abolition could look like within therapeutic contexts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, well, so Gabe, here's the thing for me about that is I don't. I, well, I guess I'm trying to embrace that spirit of a million different tiny experiments, and I'm, I'm learning about it as we go. Um, I'll tell you some of what I've been finding, like the idea of solidarity, the way that uh, you know Robin D. G. Kelly, Fred Moten, Fidia Hartman, and others talk about solidarity i've been thinking about that as like what if that was a bit more important than empathy you know the idea of empathy uh sort of some sometimes maybe even often i don't know if that's right to say but it's more about the empathizer right than it is the empathizee um it's like oh i can relate to this person who's different than me and i can empathize and i can feel better about myself Whereas, like, you know, the idea of solidarity is something different. Solidarity, you know, I think Fred Moten calls, called it an irrefusible difference. Uh, the acknowledgement of an irrefusible difference. I love that idea. That, that we maybe can't empathize with folks in certain ways, right? Especially folks that might have drastically different experiences, minoritized, racialized, et cetera, people in the world. And the other thing I love about solidarity is it requires action. You know, not that empathy is not, I mean, but empathy I can just do from my office seat as a therapist. I can empathize and then I can go home. But if I am to be in solidarity with someone, that means that I uh, am going to be have to, I'm going to have to take action, not only in the, the therapy relationship, but also just outside in the world. Like I'll try to give you an example. Like if a therapist is saying I'm anti, I'm anti-racist. Okay, like um, I, I I'm not always sure what that means these days because it's being adopted by so many people in so many different ways. But okay, I, I, in general, I like the spirit of that. But then, in what ways is your therapy practice 
asking anti-racist questions or behaving in anti-racist ways. And then what are you doing outside of like, to me, uh, uh, solidarity and really anti-racism, a lot of these things that they kind of boil down to the idea of shared practice, right? Mm -hmm. Shared practice over individual role. And so to engage in shared practice means if I say I'm an anti-racist therapist, then I have to be practicing that way in my life, yeah. right? How am I engaging in shared practice in my life? And and this is the part that I wish therapy, this is the part abolition has gifted me with regard to thinking about therapy and that I, then I wish therapy would think more about like, it's not just how I come into the room and perform some sort of therapeutic role or, or, or that might be a little harsh to say perform, but, you know, form a therapeutic relationship. It's, it's who am I as a human being, right? Like self of the therapist and Aponte uh, does some good work around this sort of thing. So it exists, but, but not, not, not often in an abolitionist sense, right? Not in thinking about, what am I doing to make the world more equitable? But like for me, one thing I think about is this new academic job I took. One of the questions I asked, I'm entering into co-leadership with, with a woman, co-leadership of a, of a program. And one of the questions I asked was, well, I, I want to, well, it was more of a statement, I guess, at first was, I want to make sure I don't get paid more than she gets paid. Um because that's not right. If we're in co-leadership, then um, the the compensation, the way in which the labor is. Be- now, you know, I had people say to me, well, you could be leaving money on the table. And my response to them was, I probably am. But if I'm going to live up to who I say I wish to be, which of course, all of us come up short sometimes, but if I'm going to do that, then I have a responsibility to engage in shared practice. And this is one way that I can engage in shared practice, knowing that as a man in academia, uh, on average, I get paid more than my woman colleagues, right? And so I wish therapists would start thinking about these things, not just what's happening in the therapeutic relationship, but what are the ways I'm engaging in shared practice in my life? And if I am, guess what? I'm just going to end up showing up in different ways with the people I'm working with, right? My my quote-unquote clients. I'm going to show up in in new ways because of that engagement and shared practice. Now, I could say a lot more. I want to want to be respectful of the give and take and the time here, but I hope that like this idea of solidarity and shared practice could give folks one in uh, the beginning of an insight into how abolitionist ideas might impact psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love the the term that comes to mind is Mariam Kaba's co-struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I love this word, like enfleshing, <laughs> enfleshing um, what we actually mean, what we actually hope to do. Mm. I am curious as for the last question. Mm-hmm. I know it, it feels big, but what is um, what does your abolitionist dream look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if it's fully fleshed out and I imagine it'll change, but this is the best way I can start to articulate it now. Like as I think about our field and our profession, that there's a space where uh, people can sort of sit in the driver's seat of healing and that we train a generation of therapists that are comfortable with that, right? They're com- that, that really our job is to 
not to come so much with all of our fancy models and techniques and prescriptions, but rather what we become experts in is learning about the preferred mediums of healing and the expertise of the other, right? The person who's sitting across from us and that we become experts in helping to organize that and ask good questions about it such that that can be elevated in a way that like, I'll, I'll share this story. When I was first starting off as a therapist, <laughs> and again, it's a result of the systems and the structures that I was embedded in, but I thought I had to be like the genius, you know? That was a lot of damn pressure, by the way. I'm just thinking back on those days, but I thought I had to be the one who like gave the interpretation or like, go do this, you know? And then they would come back and be like, you're a wise therapist. But the problem with that was like a lot of times it wasn't so great. I, I, I describe my results generally as mediocre. And, and then I felt more like shit because I was like, I don't know what the hell to do with it, you know. And then there was this sense of hopelessness that would take over. And, you know, but I wanted to be the savior who rode in on the horse, you know, and I was the savior. And then I started to realize over years I'm talking about that it's so much richer when people arrive at that themselves. And then over time, I learned that it's so much richer when they can arrive at those places through mediums and language that are close to them, right? Yeah. That make sense to them. Okay. And that when we, we, when we can provide environments like that, um, it, it, I, I'm not going to say it to this all the time, but at least there's the possibility for transformational healing and transformational growth or change, whatever we want to use. So, but, but I think the way that happens is by us not having all these damn answers all the time, like theoretical orientations, fine. Like we, we need some way to organize what we're thinking, but I, you know, part of my abolitionist dream as regards to psychotherapy, you know, what we would tear down and build anew. I mean, that we wouldn't spend so much damn time on teaching all of the, I like history and it's important to know history, but you know, like when you look through a theories of personality or counseling theories book, it's almost all white dudes. Like if you're lucky, you get Karen Horney, you know? Um, okay. So a white woman from early in the 20th to mid 20th century, fine. But part of my abolitionist dream is that we'd be, and this is going to require a different way of thinking and being, but that we'd have a, a manu uh, like, 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 like books. I don't know if they're books or whatever the hell they are written word or spoken word of what's happening right now. You know, that we wouldn't just spend all the time on history. We should spend some time on that. I don't want to get rid of it altogether. We should understand it in its context, but then we would just have new emerging, you know, whether they're podcasts or books or they're, you know, on websites, whatever, but that you could see what people are doing in real time, right? That these are the movements that are happening because the, the reality is the people that are doing the work on the ground, it takes a long time for the research to catch up. Mm -hmm. uh, those of us doing the work, we know that, right? But imagine a world where we could just, we had portals to share this and then academia shared this, this stuff too, right? So it wasn't like just us sharing tips, you know, uh, you know, in our communities, but that academia was like, no, this is actually the way to train people. Like what's on the cutting edge right now? What's happening? You know, David, David Epstein asked me this question frequently, and I love this question. He says, what's, what, what have you been doing that's new in your practice? What have you been doing that's different? And I so love that question because it forces me to 
interrogate my own practice and go, are you just reproducing the same shit? Because, or, or are you trying to create, co-create things that will meet this moment in history? And that, and that's like, if we you know, talk about an abolitionist dream, imagine not just psychotherapy, but a world. And we have the ability with how quickly we can share things, right? But imagine a world where we're co-creating what we need to create to, meet, to, to meet this particular moment in history. Mm-hmm. And then imagine academia, or maybe it's something different. You know, we abolish academia, and we, we come up with new ways of teaching and learning, new forms for that. But whatever it is, we adopt this sort of practice. Oh, boy, I'm getting excited just talking about it. And then a little, a little depressed because I have to go back into these environments, um, you know, where where. Uh, the status quo uh, or or you know like like change in, in systems like academia are so small you know i guess we have to celebrate those we might start moving in the right direction but they're they're so small and so slow but yeah that's my that's my abolitionist future and now i feel quite hopeful Gabe. thanks for asking me and, and having me articulate that okay i was actually about to say as a way to conclude to just show off how much you have also given me so much hope in the realms of, um, yeah, of psychotherapy, even of education, of academia. And um, I know that even though maybe it will not be in this lifetime where we get to abolish the measures of what it means to be a learner or to be um, uh, an embodied accompaniment to those who are healing, um, but I, I feel that um, like a, it's like, so ho- who says this? Somebody said that hope is a memory of the future. Mm. And I feel like this is an embodied, like this conversation, um, which is one of my most favorite conversations now, um, not just like in, um, in, in collaborative projects and spaces, but just a conversation. Um, I feel like this is an embodied memory um, a lived out memory of the future. Um, and I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you do, for who you are, for honoring story, for honoring humanity. Thank you. And thank, thanks for having me. This conversation was great. I'm glad it's recorded in the sense that, um, you know, I'd like to learn from it again. You know, you ask really great questions, just some of the language you use, uh, there are little subtleties that, I, I'll need to listen to again and, and really take in. And that's when I know I'm in a good conversation, when I'm eager to go back and be like, what was that that she said? You know. <laughs> so anyways, um, thank you for, for uh, having me be a part of this. It was fantastic. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know 